This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. The National Assessment of Educational Progress, or NAEP, as it is called in short, but it's also known as the nation's report card, the very important survey that's undertaken periodically by the U.S. Department of Education, it's just released its first post-COVID report on student achievement in math and reading for students at the age of nine. That's when most students are in fourth grade. The results aren't good. Test performances are down from where they were two years ago in both math and reading for nearly all groups of students. Is this a harbinger of a new age in American education? Are we seeing the beginning of a decline in student performance from one year to the next? Or is this just a momentary slip from which young people will quickly recover? Or are we gonna see a new plateau? To discuss these issues, I have with me on the Education Exchange today, Martin West, a member of the National Governing Board, which is responsible for the administration of the National Assessment. He's also the academic dean at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And he's also editor-in-chief of Education Next. So thank you, Marty, for joining me on the Education Exchange. It's great to be with you, Paul. Well, Marty, before we dig into the whys and wherefores, can you give us some of the key findings from the report? Well, I think there are two findings that stand out for me. And I had an interesting conversation with Peggy Carr, who's the commissioner of the National Center for Education Statistics, about which is the headline and which is the subheadline. And we agreed that they're they're equally important. So the first is just the substantial decline in average scores for the nation as a whole. For mathematics, scores were down seven points, and that was actually the first time that scores have declined by a significant amount over a prior administration in the entire 50-year history of the long-term trend mathematics assessment. In reading, scores were down five points. Uh, that's the largest drop in scores since 1990. And so substantial declines in average scores is finding number one. And we can talk a little bit more about how large those drops are, if that would be useful later on. But the second finding that stands out to me is that not everyone lost the same amount of ground. And in particular, students who were lower achieving prior to the pandemic lost the most ground between 2020 and 2022. So one of the things we do when reporting the NAEP results is we report not just the average scores, but how students did at different percentiles of the achievement distribution. And so if we look at students at the 90th percentile in math, they lost only three points in math. So students at the 90th percentile lost three points. Students at the 10th percentile lost 12 points, four times as much ground. And you see a similar pattern in reading. So we had a decline in average scores and then a substantial widening of the gap between our highest and lowest performing students. Well, there's a lot to chew on in all of that. So uh, first of all, we're not talking about literally the same students two years ago and in 2022. It's because there's a different group of students who are age nine in 2022 than in, the, in 2020. That's correct. It is a new cohort of nine-year-olds. Uh, each of the two cohorts, the cohort that was tested in 2020, just prior to the pandemic, and the cohort that was tested earlier this year, uh, are, are different, uh, different cohorts of nine-year-olds. Both of them are nationally representative. And in fact, 
I believe it's 92% of the schools that participated in 2020 also participated again in 2022. And there were some additional schools added or removed just to maintain the national representativeness. But in many cases, it is the exact same schools, uh, though you're right, it is not the exact same students. Okay, so now I was intrigued by your finding that you reported there that this is the first time math scores are down. And I've just completed a study with Danny Shaquille, which shows that math scores have increased by a full standard deviation over the last 20, uh, half century, the last 50 years, a huge increase in math performance. And you're sort of saying the same thing here. It's never gone down. It's always gone up in the past and now it's going down. So it is really a striking change between uh, what what, what's been happening in the past. So why were math scores climbing, climbing, climbing year after year and now all of a sudden turning around? Well, uh, why math scores were climbing was really the focus of your paper with Danny Shaquille, which I think very usefully called attention to this positive development over the long run, which is that gradually math achievement in particular, reading achievement as well, but to a lesser extent, has been increasing in the United States over this half century for which we have data from the long-term trend, Nate, uh, you and Danny point to the potential importance of out-of-school factors. And I think uh, things like improved early childhood environments, improved health conditions uh, have probably been important drivers of that improvement. I would also point to some policy factors, in particular, the test-based accountability movement, which when it was first enacted at the state level in the 1990s and then brought uh, to a national stage with No Child Left Behind in uh, 2001, did seem to produce some one-time jumps in students' level of achievement. I think you can also point to changes in school funding. You can point to desegregation earlier in this period. But uh, so I think it's a, a lot of factors. I think you all have highlighted the role of out-of-school factors. I think some education policy choices have also been important drivers. So all of that's very interesting. Now, uh, the numbers have uh, produced some controversy. I had some students in my class yesterday. One student said, scores have slipped a bit. The other student said, this is the most massive, this undoes all the progress that's been made in 50 years. So. How big is the slip or 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 or, or jump, whatever it is? So this uh, drop between 2020 and 2022 has not erased all of the progress that's been made over the past 50 years. It has set achievement back. One way to look at it, uh, about two decades worth of progress. The decline in math. We don't often talk about NAEP scores using this metric, but I suspect many of your listeners will be familiar with the idea of an effect size or measuring the size of a change relative to the standard deviation of the outcome. And so the drop in math is just a little bit shy of 20% of a standard deviation. Uh, we know that to be a pretty substantial change in achievement, especially when it occurs at scale, right? This is telling us that that's the average loss across all, uh, well, I was gonna say 50 million students, that's the K-12 population. This finding is only for nine-year-olds. Uh, but, you know, millions of students. 
Yes, and how about for reading? So it's it's twenty percent of a standard deviation in math, and what is it in standard deviations in, in reading? I believe it's about uh, twelve percent or thirteen percent of a standard deviation in reading. So uh, not as substantial as the change in math, uh, but still quite robust. But you know, the progress that's been made in reading over the last half century is only about twenty percent of a standard deviation. So if you look at the reading scores, you could say, you know. Well over half of the gains that have been made in the past have been have been placed in jeopardy with the uh, current situation. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's exactly right. And that was the way The New York Times chose to frame the change in its headline, saying that the uh, the drop had erased about two decades worth of progress. And I think that's uh, one way to look at the change in both subjects. Well, so how about the differences? Uh, you talked about the disadvantage, the low performers, but how about the ethnic groups out there? Uh, do you see greater declines for uh, students of color than for white students? So there was one instance in which we saw a statistically significant increase in the size of a racial or ethnic gap. And that was the gap in math performance between black students and white students. So that gap, uh, widened considerably because Black students on average lost more ground during the pandemic in math than did white students. Um, and, you know, that's uh, another change in a long-term trend. One of the legitimate, if admittedly partial, success stories over the past half century has been a gradual narrowing of racial and ethnic gaps in achievement. And so that long-term trend really reversed in this latest assessment. The other changes in racial gaps in math pointed in that same direction. So Hispanic students lost slightly more ground than white students. Uh, so in the direction of greater inequality, but they didn't rise to the level of statistically significant changes. And then in reading, we saw much more similar changes across white students, Hispanic students, and black students. So no real changes in those gaps in reading. Well, that's sort of curious too, that you don't see much difference between uh, Blacks, Hispanics, and whites in reading, but you do see these things in, in mathematics. So what, why, why do you think that might happen? So I don't have a great explanation for that. And I look forward to seeing whether that pattern is confirmed in the much larger main NAEP assessment, which will be coming out for grade four and grade eight uh, in October. But uh, you know, the the overall effect was larger in math than in reading. And a common pattern in education research, as you know, is that oftentimes the, the effects of attending a high quality school or having a particularly effective teacher or experiencing a given intervention are more pronounced in math than in reading. And sometimes we hypothesizes that that's because what schools do is more important for math achievement, where reading achievement is really influenced by both what schools do and by everything else that a, a student experiences while they're growing up. And so, you know, it may be that if what's really driving these overall changes was um, school closures, the lower quality experience provided by remote instruction, if Black and Hispanic students were more impacted by those uh, changes, which I think it seems to be the case that, that that 
that is uh, what happened, then you might expect to see those, those differences in students' experiences show up more clearly in the math results than the reading results. But again, I want to see that pattern replicated or, or perhaps perhaps modified a bit when we get some additional evidence from the main NAEP later this year. Uh, there, there's one thing I would like to applaud the national assessment for, and one thing that I want to say that's more critical. So let's start with the positive. So one thing I was truly amazed at was that we got a national assessment administered to the same category of students, nine-year-olds, in 2020 and again in 2022, exactly before and exactly after the worst of the pandemic. And so we have a really good measure of the effects of the pandemic really early on. And government never works that way. It always takes three to five years to come up with something. So how did this happen that the US government with a change of administrations managed to do something right? Well, I think it, it is impressive that we were able to pivot in this way. And I think it was just a matter of recognizing a opportunity we had to contribute to the national conversation about uh, the pandemic and what's needed in education going forward. So as I mentioned, the nine-year-old long-term trend assessment had been administered in January through early March of 2020. So if you recall, that is immediately prior to when COVID broke out, when schools were forced to close their doors. And we had also done a assessment of 13-year-olds slightly before that time. Um, and the long-term trend assessment is given to nine-year-olds, 13-year-olds, and 17-year-olds. The 17-year-old assessment was was canceled because it was scheduled to occur later in the spring of 2020. And our initial thought was, well, when it's safe to go back into schools in 2022, we'll just go back and do that 17-year-old assessment that we didn't do in 2020. But the more we thought about it, we said, you know, those 17-year-old results are going to be very hard to interpret because those students hadn't been assessed previously. Uh, since I believe 2011. So, you know, that change from 2011 to 2022 wasn't going to tell us much about the impact of the pandemic per se. And so uh, some colleagues and I on the governing board had the idea of why don't we change the assessment schedule and uh, go out and assess nine-year-olds again. It took a little convincing of our colleagues at the National Center for Education Statistics, uh, but ultimately they uh, to their credit, uh, agreed that this was a good idea and that they had the capacity to pull it off. And so, um, you know, technically we had a vote to amend the assessment schedule. I was uh, honored to have the opportunity to present that amendment uh, and my colleagues on the governing board adopted it. Well, that's, uh, that's great. And I'm glad you were able to persuade the uh, staff very seldom can a board influence the staff of a government agency. The staff of a government agency usually calls the shots in the end. So I think you are, uh, this is an unusual situation, but a very compelling situation. Yeah, I will say that the initial reaction from some members of the staff at NCES was, uh, was, was caution, uh, you know, was that uh, we have a plan in place and let's stick to that plan. 
But I think the more we talked about it, the more we all came to see the advantages of, of making this change. And so it really was not a uh, contentious process at all. Uh, it was a process of, of gradual consensus building and not even so gradual, actually, as you say, you know, we were able to make this pivot on relatively short notice. So um, looking, uh, looking to why, uh, one of the questions that's not in the questionnaire that was administered, as far as I can tell, correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I can tell, there's nobody asked the question, were schools open or was learning online at your school this past year or some question like that? Is that correct? And if so, why didn't that, why wasn't that simple question asked? Students were asked whether they recalled having remote instruction at any point in time in the prior school year, the uh, 2021 school year. And uh, I think about 72% of them reported that that was the case. There was some modest variation in that across different student groups. And that is available for, uh, readers to download and look at. They can even look at it in conjunction with changes in achievement among different student subgroups. And so that, that information is available. We chose, or our colleagues at NCS really chose not to foreground that in releasing the results due to, I think, concerns about whether that really is a good indicator of what students experienced relative to the kinds of measures that uh, outside researchers will be able to bring into analyses of the NAEP data. Um, and also because I think it would lend itself to very crude comparisons that might not actually shed much light on the uh, relative effects of, of school closures per se. So- Well, um, will this information be available to outside researchers? Because generally speaking, as far as I know, the long-term trend data Yes, eventually it does, uh, you get that information at the individual level. So you, but right now you can't get that information for a year more recent than I think it's 2017. So when can we anticipate that the research community will have this information? So I don't have any information on the anticipated schedule for making the underlying restricted use data available to outside researchers, but I would imagine that it would follow the standard practice, which, as you say, does take some time. Uh, but in the meantime, there, uh, again, the, that information at the aggregate level and by student subgroup is available for download. People can begin working with it already. Uh, the other thing I would say is that the main NAEP results, recall, uh, are coming out in just a couple of months. And those results uh, are different in that they look at both fourth and eighth grade in reading and math, and they uh, are available by state or jurisdiction. So they're uh, 53 states or jurisdictions. They're also available for 26 urban school districts. Uh, and so I think there will be clear opportunities when those results come out to try to draw connections between what students experienced during the pandemic uh, in different geographies and the changes in achievement that uh, show up. Well, of course, we generally, we have a general explanation for why the test scores suddenly uh, reverse direction. Uh, it was obviously due to the pandemic, 
and all the uh, uh, decisions that were made in the course of the pandemic. But what specifically about the pandemic do you think was the contributing factor or the set of, of, of forces at work? Well, as you know, Paul, NAEP data are much better suited to tell us what's happened than why something has happened. Uh, and I think that's true even in this case. While my colleagues and I are comfortable drawing a clear connection between the pandemic writ large and the changes that occurred over this narrow window of time, uh, I don't think we're in a position to speak confidently based on these data about the factors that caused the decline. So, you know, the pandemic obviously disrupted education. It also disrupted families' lives. It caused unemployment uh, and the like. And all of these changes could have contributed to the drop in achievement. That being said, I think we have other research, including work by my colleague Tom Kane at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, that really does demonstrate that remote instruction was on average much less effective for virtually all students than in-person instruction. And that this was particularly the case for low performing students. And so a big part of the story just has to be the prolonged school closures and the reliance on remote instruction, even if I can't point to evidence in the NAEP data itself that strongly supports that claim. Right, and there's also data from the uh, state of North Carolina, which uh, did have data on the same students before and after, and they really uh, reached the same conclusion that in-person learning was a much uh, more, you know, the kids were learning more under that arrangement. Uh, and the and even the hybrid mode wasn't much better than the uh, remote mode. So, so hopefully we will we will have more information on all of that. Now, the Wall Street Journal blames the teacher unions for all of this. Uh, is is that the best explanation we have? Teacher unions wanted to keep the schools closed, and they and the school boards just caved and did what they're told. Well, I think that's certainly part of the story. Uh, I think it's fair to say that teachers unions made school reopening more difficult. It's interesting that when we've polled Americans about that, Paul, you and I, we find that most Americans actually don't have the sense that teachers unions made it harder to reopen schools. And I think that's because they were very effective in, in saying, look, we're for reopening schools. We just have a long list of conditions that need to be met in order for them to be reopened. So um, yes, I think it's fair to say that part of the responsibility for school closures does rest with teachers unions. But anytime when we're talking about decisions being made, uh, it's, it's school boards and state policymakers who are the ultimate decision makers. And uh, so I think it's too easy to blame unions for the pressure that they were applying. We need to blame the decision makers themselves. Well, do you think those state decision makers and uh, school district decision makers will make a different decision if they're faced with a situation like this next time? Are, are, are we going to learn from these NAEP results that there's really a price to be paid when you close schools and go online, and therefore you should resist any temptation to do this unless the crisis is much more significant for school children than this one turned out to be? First, I certainly hope we don't experience another situation at all like this in my lifetime or my children's lifetime. But I do think we've learned 
important lessons about the importance of in-person instruction and the role, the many roles that schools play in our communities, even beyond their narrow mandate of improving students' academic skills. We've learned just how disruptive school closures are to uh, students, to families, and to communities. And so I do think in future crises, again, I hope we don't have one, but uh, in future crises, uh, we will have learned to place more weight on that and uh, to avoid school closures, if at all possible. Well, and also we should celebrate the teacher because this proves that really teachers are important and direct personal contact with your teacher is a really important part of the learning process. So I think in many ways, teachers should be celebrated as for their importance and how much they were missed during this period of time. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So I want to end up on one positive note. I think Asian students did well relative to other groups and, and really suffered relatively little harm. Is that correct? So that's certainly the case in reading, Paul, where we saw Asian American students actually tick up by one point between 2020 and 2021, though that change wasn't statistically significant. In math, though, Asian American students lost six points, which was not different from what was experienced by Hispanic students or white students by a statistically significant amount. So I guess it does appear that Asian students uh, did um, less badly than other groups, but I don't think it would be fair to say that they thrived uh, amid the pandemic. No, and of course it's possible that they had, their families could support their reading, but couldn't support their math. Uh, and, uh, and that might account for some of, the, some of the differences between reading and math in the case of the Asian students as it was, as you said earlier, more generally. Yes, I think that's certainly possible. Um, I just, the long-term trend assessment, the sample is in the tens of thousands, so it's quite large. Uh, but when we start talking about student subgroups, sometimes the, the results are, are less precise than we want them to be. So that six percentage point decline that I just said we saw for Asian American students, that actually wasn't statistically significant, but it's quite substantial in, in magnitude. And so we're not able to say anything with great precision about the student subgroups. That's another reason to really wait to uh, draw stronger conclusions about differences along racial and ethnic lines until we have the main NAEP uh, results in, in October. Those are based on hundreds of thousands of students rather than tens of thousands of students. Well, thank you, Marty, for that authoritative uh, interpretation of the uh, recently released report from the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Uh, it's my pleasure, Paul. Always good to talk with you. I have been speaking with Martin West, a member of the National Governing Board responsible for the administration of the National Assessment for Educational Progress. He's also the academic dean at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. A new Education Exchange podcast is released on the Education Next website each Monday at noon Eastern time. Thank you for joining me.